1: Hey, quick note, there are English and Spanish episodes of Anything for Selena. This is the English one. Si quieres escuchar en español, vuelve al feed y selecciona la versión con el título en español.
2: Produced by the iLab at WBUR, Boston.
1: Okay, we're starting in Juarez again today. In another big New Year's Eve party in the 90s, I still have the camcorder video. My grandmother is there, she's dancing, a peppy smile on her face. My mama nena, my mom's mom, smiled like this often, contagiously. And on this video, she beams as she quite literally hangs on to a young man she's dancing with. She's in her 50s, he's in his 20s, he's dressed like a cholo, baggy black jeans, buttoned-up long plaid flannel shirt. She's dressed, you know, like a señora. Polyester-tan pants, a shiny tan blouse with red flowers. But they are dancing. He twirls her, she goes with it, he spins her, she's into it. And it goes on for hours, all night. My family calls it the New Year's Eve of the Cholo. No one quite remembers whose friend he was or who he arrived with. But as soon as he walked into that door, this young man zeroed in on my mama nena to the confusion and amazement of all the guests, including myself. My mom remembers
3: mi mamá y mi mamá toda la noche bailó con el cholo se acopló muy bien el paso
1: my mamá nena cheek to cheek with the cholo while gossipy relatives looked on it's one of my favorite childhood memories so on brand for her mamá nena had this ethos that she'd tell us all the time que nunca te importe lo que la gente diga de ti Never care what people say about you.
3: People
1: are always
3: going to talk.
1: You're never going to please people, and they don't pay your bills anyway. Pero si se tu juez. But they'll want to turn into your judge. Even when I was young, I knew what a rare free spirit my Mama Nena was and how special it was that she helmed our family. Sometimes, when she stayed with us, I'd walk out of school at pickup to find her hugging the trunk of a massive oak tree while confused parents and classmates looked on.
3: Estoy tomando la energía de este árbol. <laughs>
1: She'd say she was absorbing the tree's energy. My grandmother was a literal tree hugger. She also collected quartz crystals and believed in their cleansing energy. She had statues of Buddha in her home, to the disdain of heavily Catholic Mexico. She traveled with her other senora friends— One of my favorite and few vintage family heirloom pieces is a yellow spaghetti strap shirt she bought in San Francisco and wore braless, like I wear it now. When I was 15, my mama nena had a stroke that forced a double-leg amputation. And my mama nena, who loved to dance all the time, With cholos at parties, waiting for the bus stop in public, even at church, fell into a deep depression. I have these haunting memories of her convalescing in our trailer after her amputation, laying in our living room couch most of the day, frail and lost, the glimmer in her eyes gone. And I, I was a teenager preoccupied with over my eyebrows and dyeing my hair, self-absorbed, unaware that I'd soon lose the pillar of my family, the woman my mom and I are named after. My mamá nena's presence looms large, even now, 20 years after her death. She comes up at every family toast at Christmas, We put up an altar for her every Dia de los Muertos. She's become mythologized for the kids who never met her, like my own son. Her story is our family lore. She is undoubtedly the matriarch of our family. And lately, I've been thinking about my mama nena a lot. In a way that has forced me to confront myself, to reevaluate my identity, how I identify. And it started because of
3: Selena.
1: When Selena would go to Mexico, reporters would ask her how it felt to reconnect with her roots. Her origins. The crowds would eat it up. There was a hunger for her. And I was trying to imagine what it must have been like to witness Selena for the first time on Latin American screens. My mind kept going back to these little moments with my mama nena on Saturday mornings, watching Mexican programming. And I remembered just how white most everyone on TV was. My aunt, my tia Eva, Mama Nena's daughter, remembers. I remember
2: when I was growing up and the TV, the commercials, all the people in Mexico, in Mexican commercials, they were looking like, they were light skin, very light skin, white, white with um, color eyes, like green, blue eyes. And uh, you didn't see any like brown people in the commercials.
1: So there we'd be Mama Nena and I watching mostly white faces on TV for hours. But then Selena came around. Legibly not white. Her brownness stood out even on the Mexican channels my Mama Nena watched.
2: Nunca pensé, la verdad nunca pensé que el grupo iba a ser tan conocidos aquí en la República Mexicana
1: In fact, on Selena's first trip to Mexico, journalists called her an artist of the people, an artist who reflected Mexico better than most everyone on Mexican television, in her coffee-colored eyes, her chestnut skin, her pronounced lips, her visible indigenous ancestry. Thinking about Selena's heritage inevitably made me think of mine and my mama nena, who also had markedly indigenous ancestry. Because when journalists in Mexico said that Selena looked like the artist of the people, they meant people like my grandmother. I went through old photos of my mama nena recently and I talked to my mom and aunt about her. Her hair was curled. That she
2: has these, like, really short. Because if
1: not, she would have an afro, she would have an afro. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I started thinking about those moments on the couch on Saturday mornings, how my mama Nena's short hair grew upwards, framing her face like a crown of tight, coily spirals. My aunt has thought about my mama Nena's hair too and her skin and features.
2: I actually have seen people that look like her. They are coming from um, African-American heritage, but she looks alike like them. Actually, when I saw that, I thought that, oh, they look like my mom.
1: After my mama Nena died, the most common photo I saw displayed of her was one of her as a teenager that had been clearly shot and retouched at a studio. Her skin lightened to a soft peach. This was the photo of my mama nena I've put up at every apartment I've ever lived in. This is how I've seen her the last 20 years of my life, edited to be a light-skinned woman. But she was not that My Mama Nena was clearly an indigenous woman, perhaps with some African ancestry, as is common in some regions of Mexico. Her skin, a rich, beautiful mahogany, not a peachy pink. I don't have a long family history. Like many people from a colonized country, I can only go back a couple generations. And my family... Never seemed to talk about my Mama Nena's heritage. We were like raised like that, praising the, the white skin
2: and denying the, the brown skin. This is my Tia Eva again. We just wanted to talk about the beautiful, the white. We didn't talk about what was uh, brown skin and the possibility of having that heritage. It's, 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 it was something that we didn't honor or have a uh, pride of. We were not um, raised like that. At least it, that was the, the way the things were at the time.
1: When I started writing this podcast, I expected to get into Selena's physical being, her features, her phenotype and why it mattered, and how our perception of her brownness has perhaps evolved over the years, just as Latino identity has evolved in the last quarter century since her death. But that exploration forced me to look within. It forced me to confront race and colorism in my own family the way my grandmother was treated for being a dark-skinned woman, and the way I was treated for being a fair-skinned girl. Yes, I remember that um,
2: your mama nena was so happy because you were so white. <laughs> she was so happy, maybe because she, her, her um, skin tone was dark in comparison with yours, but... Um, she felt so happy to have a a white granddaughter.
1: This is anything for Selena, a podcast about belonging. If you've seen Selena, the series, on Netflix, then you know Selena, or Christian Serratos as Selena, rarely speaks. Sometimes I guess it'd be fun to just go out with other kids, but during the week, nobody goes out and on the weekends we have shows, which is fine. And when she does, she's a bit meek, not super involved in the artistry of her music, often concerned with things like glitter.
4: Dad. Mm. Saying we're going to continue to do this is one thing,
1: but we need a new band now.
2: Ooh, and new outfits. Mom, I can help design something really cute, huh? Let's stay away from splattering glitter all over my floor,
1: okay?
0: Oh my God, I vacuumed twice over. <laughs>
1: Still, the Netflix series reached number one in multiple countries, a market success. But it didn't quite land that way with TV critics and Selena fans. The reviews overall were far from glowing. People criticized a lot of the show's choices.
0: There are so many. The one that sticks out the most, that is the most, in my opinion, unexcusable and unforgivable, is how little agency that Selena has in Selena the Series.
1: Podcaster Mala Muñoz, who is half of the duo of Locatora Radio, went hard on socials criticizing
0: the show how little control, how little power, how little personality, how little space, how little screen time, how little dialogue. I mean, it's a, a very belittling to her, this show.
1: But the online conversation that most caught my eye was the reaction to a photo montage Mala posted of a brown Selena, next to a picture of J.Lo as Selena, in which J.Lo looks lighter than real Selena, and next to that picture, a photo of an even lighter Christian Serratos, who plays Selena in the series. Mala called it the gradual whitewashing of Selena. Selena's race immediately came into question. And I noticed people perceived Selena's brownness very differently. We were these browner than lighter, curly-haired
3: girls that saw so much of ourselves in Selena. And we're just not seeing it in this new
2: series. Have you seen how light-skinned her mom and sister are? Next to Frida
1: Kahlo, she is another Latina that hugely benefited from whiteness.
2: I don't think this
3: comparison is fair given that Frida's background was heavily European and Selena's was heavily
1: indigenous.
4: Selena had melanin, but let's not pretend she was ever Tonantzin.
1: Tonantzin, by the way, is the indigenous deity that the Spanish recast as the Virgin Mary in Mexico. The comments to Malas Twitter thread showed me just how much Selena's identity is up for dispute. Maybe Selena was darker than Christian Serrato's, but not by much, people said. Yet, Tamala, Selena's brownness is obvious.
0: I think that it does point to exactly what I'm talking about, a gradual whitewashing of Selena over the years, to the point where people are saying that Selena was white. (laughs) Like, mission accomplished, whitewashing complete. Selena's white now, according to people.
1: I agree with Mala on this. To me, it doesn't seem like Selena walked the world with the privileges
0: of a white woman. It's like their entire origin story is having faced racist discrimination as Visibly brown, markedly Mexican, non white people in Texas. So, to now rewrite history and and come at this ahistorical approach, labeling Selena as white, when everything that we know about her is so well documented, uh, we know what she looked like. It's really not up for debate. And she was not a dark skinned woman, she was not a dark brown woman. We're not saying that, but I don't see any white people claiming Selena. There were not white people showing up in droves at her shows. So, I mean, white where?
1: The thing about Selena is that she's such a profoundly important figure in so many people's lives that she naturally inspires these big explorations. Like, there's this campy Netflix show about her— And even that gets people talking about the constructs of whiteness, about race, about what it all means.
4: I think this question about, like, is she white, is she brown, uh, for some folks was really like almost like an attack on their own sense of Latinidad when those conversations were happening, which I think is why it kind of garnered such uh, intense responses on on all sides of
1: that. That's my friend Sebastián Ferrada. They're a professor of Chicano studies at Emerson College in Boston, and they focus on race, ethnicity, and queerness.
4: The way that you can see yourself in Selena or that you iconicized her, followed her, adored her, kind of was similar to the way that you embraced or identified yourself as the next person, Latina, Latino.
1: So with Selena, in terms of phenotype, like, mm-hmm. how do you see her?
4: Um... I I'm like oh my god this is going to get me in trouble it? <laughs> I think she's you know she's she's like what we would consider I think Miss Lisa as like problematic as that term has been too right like she's not white white she's also like not like dark skin um and in my mind like to me she was like I think you can call her brown and I think that's where it's like racist subjective right like we all are going to like we all have a different maybe scale that we're using in terms of how we were socialized or how we were categorized by others in terms of like, well, what's light skin and what's dark skin and what's brown and what's not? But she's not, she wasn't a white woman, right? And so, or I don't know if right. <laughs> I think for me, it's like in my mind, she was not. And in how I see her and how I remember her and when I watch her videos and her performances, like that was not a, a white woman on stage. You know, it's kind of besides the point, I think.
1: I also think it's a little besides the point. Because really, what matters to me is how Selena makes us ask questions about ourselves. In fact, I called Sebastián mainly because they and I had been talking about race, our own Latinx identities, how and where we belong, for a little while now. Sebastián identifies as a first-generation Chicanx from Los Angeles. Seba's dad is Chilean. Their mother is Mexican. Spanish was their first language. Part of the reason Seva and I connected in Boston was because we both work in pretty white institutions, and it felt refreshing to be around someone who got me. And Sebastián, whose skin is pretty light, had mentioned to me how last summer they stopped calling themselves a person of color, particularly after the protests for George Floyd.
4: We were really, I think, forced to like look our, at ourselves in the mirror as like Latinx people, especially those of us like myself who are white Latinx people, right? And and really, you know, the fact that I can even say that without hesitating, <laughs> being forced to look inward, be forced to reflect on what it means and 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 how important it is to kind of uh, grapple with whiteness within Latinx communities, because I think. If we're not doing that, we're doing such a disservice and so much violence and harm to Black and Indigenous people of color who also identify as Latinx.
1: Growing up, I always felt different than my white friends. Or maybe I was made to feel different. Either way, I never thought of myself as a white girl. I had thick, black, curly hair, full lips, a stout, curvy body. I felt Mexican. Mexican. And in my world, in Texas, on the border, Mexican, especially working-class Mexican like me, was oppositional to white. Completely oppositional. I mean, I knew that I had light skin, but I thought I was relatively light-skinned compared to my brown mother and my brown brother. That I was not white-white, but a Mexican who tanned less. Yet this project has forced me to look even deeper within and to my life. And I kept thinking about something Sebastián told me.
4: How has me being white also granted me so much access and privilege throughout my life in the terms of education and employment and opportunity? Because to to not acknowledge that or to not recognize that is, I think, extremely anti-Black.
1: And I kept going back to my mama nena, to the story of how she reacted the day I was born, how much she praised my white skin. I've heard the story all of my life. And she was so proud. To
2: everybody that um, she saw at that time, she she told them that um, she had a beautiful granddaughter.
1: I ask my mom if she thinks my mamá nena would have reacted the same way had I been born brown. She says yes. ¿Tú crees que si yo hubiera nacido morenita, hubiera, hubiera hecho el mismo, tuviera la misma reacción?
3: Claro que sí, claro que sí, sí la hubiera tenido, porque Jesús no nació, tu hermano no nació blanco y aun sin embargo también se sentía bien contenta
1: because my mama nena was just as thrilled when my brother who is brown was born except the story of his birth isn't the stuff of family lore it's not the kind of story that gets retold over and over No one talks about how my mama nena showed him off at the hospital, marveling at his skin tone. And my own mama nena, her sister and brother, were white, with hazel eyes. And I heard stories about their physical appearance all the time.
3: But
1: yet... People never talked about my Mama Nena's features with the admiration that people talked about her siblings' features. This is what it looks like colorism in our families, in us. Mexican history lionizes the mixing of European and indigenous ancestry. But in actuality, indigeneity is linked to lower social status something to be minimized, brushed aside, celebrated in theory and folklore, but not in real life. And Blackness has been historically erased. It wasn't until 1992 that Mexico acknowledged African ancestry as a third part of the country's heritage. Despite the fact that the Spanish brought hundreds of thousands of enslaved Black people to Mexico in the 15 and 1600s and that another tens of thousands of enslaved Black people in the U.S. crossed the border to freedom in Mexico in the 1800s. By this time, Mexico had won its independence from Spain and refused to sign a treaty with the U.S that would return enslaved people who made it through the so-called Southern Underground Railroad. Most Black people in Mexico were welcomed and absorbed into Indigenous communities, in some cases inextricably entwining the two heritages. Despite this history, it wasn't until last year, in 2020, that Mexico finally, officially recognized black Mexicans in the censuses. This erasure isn't just a national issue or a cultural issue. It's an issue in our families. For example, it was only this year when I interviewed my aunt for this podcast that I learned of my tío Lito, my mama nena's uncle, who from all accounts was black. And I started thinking about other family stories, like the story of one of my uncles, born the darkest of Mamanena's children, who Mamanena's mom mistreated, supposedly because he was named after his womanizing father. My mom still gets emotional when she talks about it.
3: Era una manera de, re- de recordarle todo lo que él le había hecho a mi mamá.
1: But I've wondered if my uncle was treated that way because of the color of his skin. I asked my aunt about it. But do you think it was could it have also been that because of his darker skin?
2: I think definitely it contributed to it. Because actually she she called him called him names like Negro when she was upset on him. So it was some, something that added up.
1: And this? This is what violent, internalized racism looks like in our families. In us. I read recently that your maternal grandmother is the key. The key to understanding the trauma and resilience that has been passed down to you through your DNA because when our mothers were in our grandmother's womb, the egg that would make us had already formed in the fetus's body. My life source is my mama nena. What does it mean that I come from a woman whose indigeneity and black ancestry were never recognized, never explored? A woman who praised my skin tone but grew up in a world that denied hers. For me, it means that my family's history is still tethered to the colonizer's caste system, to a civilization that afforded rights and privileges based on the color of people's skin and their features, white men who decided who had rights and who didn't based on how much you looked like them or didn't. And the children of those men who had to wish for whiteness to be safe, who had to wish for whiteness to be seen, who had to wish for whiteness to be loved, and the children of their children who were born in distant decades but with the same trauma running through their veins. Because we all carry our histories inside of us, whether we confront it or not. This entire podcast is built on the idea that Selena has become a quintessential symbol of Latino identity, that her face has become a shorthand for Latinidad. And we have to face that there's been a conversation happening around Latinidad and race that's intensified over the last few years, a conversation around how we identify And a call for Latinos to take a deep look within. Within our histories and our families. And for light-skinned Latinos like me, how we benefit in the world. Look, I know race is a human construct, a made-up idea, But it's a construct with real, tangible impact. The way we are perceived, the way our race is perceived, affects how society treats us. That we know. Now who is legible as white and who isn't? There's clearly a lot of people still working through this. At least it seems that way every time I scroll through TikTok.
4: Look up this article. To be a lesser white was to be an immigrant from another country and to not have fit in with the American idea of what it is to be white. There were some Polish people that were lesser white, Irish people that were lesser white, Italians that were lesser white. Nowadays, Latinos, a lot of them are lesser white. You're a step under white people, but a step above actual people of color.
1: This
2: is why oftentimes when people ask me what I am because I look racially ambiguous, you'll never catch me saying I'm white because that would be completely disingenuous. This type of gatekeeping really serves no useful purpose and it does more harm than good. It really needs to stop.
0: I don't understand why so many people are so angry at me saying that there are white Latinos. Latino is not a race, it's an ethnicity. Which means anybody from any race can be Latino. I will clearly understand that because you call black Latinos Afro-Latinos. Stop pretending like you didn't realize there was white Latinos. There are white Latinos and we are privileged. Just because we're Latino does not mean that we all face the same struggles. There is a tremendous amount of colorism within our community.
4: I made a video acknowledging my white privilege as a white Latino and I got a disgusting amount of comments saying that I'm a person of color because I'm not Anglo or that I'm distancing myself from Latinos of color. We as white Latinos need to do better. We need to acknowledge our privilege and accept that we don't face the same oppression as Latinos of color, period.
1: So where have I landed after this journey that started with Selena and led me here to ask who I am? Am I a woman of color? the way I thought I was? Well, if I was a woman of color, I think my aunt would have answered this question differently. Do you think I'm a white Mexican?
2: If, from, from being your uh, aunt and knowing you, I know you're not. But when you were growing up, for sure. What do you mean, tell me? Uh, yeah, because you were la güera. You were la güera. Everybody called you la güera. And you were uh, um, talking perfectly English. So, I mean, you were white. And, and everybody, uh, everyone in our
1: family called you güera. How can I not confront my whiteness? It brought me praise from my mama nena the minute I came to the world. How can I not recognize how much my fair skin has brought me favor in Mexico, in the States, in the world? So on this year, the year Selena led me to my roots, led me to my grandmother, to our shared history, the year I honored my mama nena's indigeneity and her blackness is the same year I interrogated my whiteness. I looked at myself. Honestly. Vulnerably. And I don't have it all figured out. But I've stopped calling myself a woman of color. When I mentioned it to friends, some of them didn't quite get it. Because in some ways, I'm still othered in this country. I think about the day someone called my son, who has my skin tone. A spic as he walked with his brown father in Brookline, Boston's progressive, affluent suburb. How depressed and anxious I was for weeks. Or the first time I took public transit in Boston and accidentally cut off an older white man who then told everyone on the train that I was what happened when you overpaid the help. But I know that for the most part, it's my Mexican ethnicity that separates me from the mainstream, that can bring me discrimination, not the color of my skin. And my ethnicity doesn't negate the privileges my skin tone has afforded me in a white supremacist world, in a world where actual people of color, people with skin darker than mine, are in danger in a way that I have never been. Selena's father, Abraham, told me that when Selena was born, the first thing he thought was una bebe morenita, a brown baby. <laughs> Selena's brownness was so revolutionary to see, not because she was so brown, but because there were so few images of indigenous or even visibly mixed race people who were successful in Latin America. Still, today, there are almost no indigenous people on TV in Mexico, in a country that supposedly lionizes its indigenous history, a place that before colonization was a center of the indigenous world. That's why when Yalitza Aparicio, from the film Roma, a Mixtec woman, appeared on the cover of Vogue it was such a huge deal she was the first and still there was backlash from white Mexican actors who said she didn't deserve the spotlight I think of Selena's amber radiance how witnessing that resplendence felt rare, because hundreds of years after European colonizers brought the concept of white superiority with them, it's still in the air. But what if we decolonize how we think of Selena? What if we celebrate her beauty, her essence, her impact, not just because it was a contrast to the white standard of the day? But because she was simply sublime, a light in the world that made things that had been erased visible, like at her last concert. the The way she came out in that plum jumpsuit and solidified herself as an American diva by singing a slew of disco classics. A genre that was born in black queer scenes. And I keep thinking about disco medley because of something scholar Deborah Paredes pointed out to me. You know, the fact that she's doing disco or the fact that she's borrowing dance moves from
2: Janet or sort of informed by Janet Jackson, the fact that she's, you know, has a, a black, you know, backup singer, all of these things together made visible not just the influence that african-american and afro diasporic sounds have had within Tejano music or or in within American popular music obviously as well but it also showed a kind of proclamation of that like not just yes it's been here it didn't just make visible what was sort of there already but it also kind of proclaimed it like yeah that's right this is part of our repertoire, you know, we we embrace this as well in as much as we embrace the ranchera and, you know, the folk, you know, the sort of sounds of the conjunto, you know, with the accordion. All of those became things that were affirmed.
1: Selena's disco medley is a visual representation of Africa in the Americas. So is the cumbia music she played so artfully, a rhythm by Black Colombians and beloved by so many Native people throughout Latin America. Her performance of these things were representations that Indigenous and Black ancestry are often linked in this continent. Selena breathed life to a connection that has been historically erased. (laughs) (laughs) This year, my family welcomed three new babies. My tía Eva, who you heard from, had twins, two beautiful boys, Mexican like her and Black like her husband William. And my brother had a baby too, A fair-skinned baby, like my sister-in-law Rachel. I wish my mama nina could have met all three. I think about what it would have been like if she were here. If she would have lived to see her great-grandchildren, two black and brown like her, and the other, white like me. I imagine her dancing, like she always did, being the life of the party. But now holding on to her great grandbabies instead of the cholo from that one party. But even if she's not here, I hope she knows how much I still admire her, how much I want the world to recognize her beauty, how much I want to honor her. And maybe the best way to do it is by using the privilege my skin tone has afforded me to create a world where black, And brown girls like my mama nena are safe, are seen, are loved. This episode is dedicated to the women who came from my mama nena. My mom, my tia, my primas, thank you for always loving me with such an open heart. Las quiero hasta el infinito. And a special thank you to Catalina Gata Ecleston, whose expertise around Latino identity and blackness was essential to the editing of this episode. Next week, our final stop. In the Selena journey, how Selena taught us to strive, to reach, to ascend. But what are we striving for now? And where did this quest with Selena take us? Well, somewhere unexpected. That's next time. If you like this episode, join us for an after party on Instagram Live, where we'll tell you about the making of the episode, chat with special guests, and have a little drink together. Start your weekend with us every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific on Instagram. Find us at Selena underscore podcast. Anything for Selena is a co-production of the iLab at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station and Futuro Studios. I'm your host, Maria Garcia. Our producers are Kristen Torres, Antonia Cerejido, and Juan Diego Ramirez, with additional production assistance from Frank Hernandez, Sandra Riano, and Maria-Alexa Cavanaugh. Mixing and sound design by Paul Beidkis. Our editor is Marlon Bishop. Ben Brock-Johnson is the executive producer of the iLab and contributed production management and editing. Additional editing by Sofia baliza Carr. Iliana Galvez created the artwork for this series. Original music for this episode was composed by Paul Veitkes. Find out more about Anything for Selena on Twitter and Instagram at selena underscore podcast and at wbur.org slash anything for Selena.